shall I take from your hands the blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then Kim and Kirk, if you would uh, reach for your Bibles and stand with me as we prepare to read our scripture reading as Pastor Bruce continues in the series on the second coming of Jesus, today's message title, What to Do Till He Comes, we'll be using Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents as our text this morning, Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30, as we discover what to do till he comes. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Father, open our hearts and our minds to have our lives changed by the power of your word and your message this morning. Be with Pastor Bruce as he uh, just speaks the words that you've laid on his heart um, to us and help us to apply uh, and grow and, and, and do what you would have us to do until you're coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Zach, for leading us in our scripture reading. Many of you are familiar with this parable, the parable of the talents. And uh, just to catch some of you up today, I know we have a lot of guests. We're in the middle of a series called Living in the Last Days. And what we've been doing, we've been going through the book of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. About the second coming. What does it mean? What's it going to be like? And how do we prepare for the return of Jesus Christ? And so uh, right now, as you can see, we're in Matthew 25, and we're looking at this story, this parable, which is familiar to many of you, called the parable of the talents or the story of the talents. But before I begin, or as a way of introduction, let me ask you a question. Kind of a little humor, if you will. Maybe it won't be humorous to some of you. In fact, you may find some of this a little cheesy, a little corny. But have you ever been so tired you fell asleep at work? Anybody been like that? So tired you fell asleep at work. In fact, perhaps you can identify with some of those pictures right there. Where if this ever happens to you, I want to offer some things that you can tell your boss if he catches you asleep at your desk. Are you ready, Bill? Okay. I warn you, they could be a little corny. Here's one. They told me at the blood bank this might happen. All right, here's another one. This is just a 15-minute power nap they raved about in the time management course you sent me to. Thanks for sending me. Or I was just testing my keyboard for drool resistance. Or you could tell your boss, hey, I wasn't sleeping. I was meditating on the mission statement and envisioning a new business strategy for you. You think that would go over well? Yeah. Or you could just blurt out as you raise your head, hey, who put decaf in the wrong pot? <laughs> or here's one, the number one best thing you can say if you get caught sleeping at your desk, you just raise your head slowly and say, in Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> well, in all seriousness, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, listen, we don't want to be caught sleeping at our desk. In fact, we don't want to be caught sleeping, period. We want to be ready. We want to be prepared when Jesus comes again. And that's the big emphasis. That's the big idea we've been learning over the past several Sundays. In fact, as you know, we studied the last days and some of the signs. And then all of a sudden, Jesus begins to tell a series of stories. Three stories in particular. He tells this story about the parable of these two servants. And then last Sunday we learned about the story of the wedding bridesmaids, or the parable of the ten virgins. And the whole idea that Jesus is trying to communicate to us with these two stories is, hey, we need to get ready. We not only need to get ready, but we need to stay ready when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, today, Jesus continues... 
And he tells another story to illustrate for us another key truth that we need to embrace about his return. Now, let me just stop and say, you know, when it comes to these stories, these parables, more often than not, they have one central idea. They have one big idea that they're trying to tell us. And that's the whole reason Jesus is telling these. He's trying to communicate a central truth to you and I. And he does this by telling these stories that we can maybe put ourselves in. We can maybe identify with some of the characters. In fact, that's why some of the characters represent who we are as believers or even unbelievers. And what Jesus wants us to do, he's saying, listen, I want you to contemplate what I'm saying. I want you to ponder your own life and evaluate where you are at in relation to what my topic is here. And so this morning, the danger of this parable is many of you have heard this over and over again, several times. And so the danger is to sit there and go, oh, it's a parable of the talents. I've heard this before. But let me encourage you, just kind of set that aside for the next 30 minutes with me this morning. And ask God to kind of open your heart and mind to something fresh and new. Not that I'm going to share anything new, but just how God may speak to you in a new way about being prepared for his return. Are you ready? And are you staying ready? Now, this parable of the talents, the great thing about this story is that it is simple, it's clear, and it's really easy to understand. And its lessons are almost impossible to miss. And yet, there's one big idea, one point that Jesus is trying to communicate with us in this story. So what is it? What's the point of the parable of the talents? We'll notice this in your notes. It tells us what to do while we're waiting for Christ's return. You ever wonder that? Has that ever crossed your mind? You know, here we are living in this earth. We're in this world, in this life. We know Jesus has told us he's going to come again. And so we get ready, we stay ready. But, oh man, what am I supposed to be doing? Do I just twiddle my thumbs, play whatever game, watch TV all day long? What do I do till Jesus comes? Well, this story answers that question for us. Jesus is telling us loud and clear, here's what I want you to be doing while you're waiting for me to return. So here it is. It's probably already on the screen and you got it. It is work while you wait. And so if you don't get anything, get this. The parable of the talents is about working while you're waiting for Jesus Christ. Work while you wait. In fact, why don't we say that together? Ready? One, two, three. Work while you wait. That's what he wants us to go home with. That's our takeaway lesson. Now, it's essential that we remain diligent and hardworking as we wait for Christ to return. As I said, this is no time to be wasting time. In fact, this is the time to be working for the Lord. And the fact that Jesus could return at any moment is no excuse for us to be quitting what he has called us to do. In a sense, to retire from anything and everything and just take it easy, sit back and relax. Instead, this should be a great incentive to work harder and stay faithful all the way to the end when Jesus returns or when we die. Now, the parable of these talents is also a warning. In a real way, Jesus is also warning us against laziness. He's warning us as believers in him against passivity. While these first two parables Jesus told emphasize having an expectant attitude, watching for his return, waiting for it, and expecting it and anticipating it, this parable emphasizes diligent action while we are waiting and watching. Sometimes we're like Calvin in the comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. How many like Calvin and Hobbes? I know there's at least one person here that does. Calvin and Hobbes comic strip. In one particular scene, Calvin's boss walks by and catches him sitting at his desk, staring out the window. Why aren't you working, Calvin? Without much thought, Calvin confessed to his boss, because I didn't see you coming. Unfortunately, that's the life of many Christians. We aren't watching, therefore we aren't working. Well, Christ is coming. So don't just sit there staring dreamily out your bedroom window, off into the clouds, just waiting for Him to return. 
Don't just check out of life. If you really believe in all your heart that Christ is coming, then get busy for the Lord. There's work to be done before Christ returns. Now, what I want to do for us this morning is out of this parable, at least for me, it raises three relevant, practical, important questions. Three, I would call crucial questions in which we ought to, we ought to think about. We ought to ponder. We ought to ask ourselves about and try to answer for us even now while we're sitting in the pew. Three questions I want you to think about. The first question is this. What are you going to do till Jesus comes? What are you going to do till Jesus comes? Now notice again how the story starts in Matthew 25 in verse 14. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who then called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Now, in those days, long business journeys were inevitable. And one reason why is, well, after all, there were no airplanes, there were no trains, no rental cars. And so as a result, a business trip to a far country might mean weeks and weeks of travel. So what would the household owner, what would the business owner do about matters at home while he was off to a far country taking care of other business? Well, commonly, he would give those responsibilities of his affairs, of his estate, over to his trusted servants. And those servants then were entrusted with overseeing all the affairs while the master was away doing other business. Now, immediately we can see Jesus wants us to understand that when the master told his servants, hey, I'm going away to a far country, he had no idea when he would return. And neither did those servants. And yet the master expected those servants to be ready for his return every day. Every morning when those servants got up, the master expected them to be ready to give an account of their stewardship over the goods that he had delivered to them. Now, what a powerful reminder that we are called to work for the Lord while he is away. Always watching for his return and yet always working on his behalf. Now, Immediately, several lessons come to mind. Let me just point out two lessons from the beginning of the story for you and I this morning. Two lessons clearly stand out. And the first is, God entrusts His resources to you and I. He entrusts His resources to each of us. Now, the imagery here in this parable is rather clear. In this parable, the man traveling to a far country is a picture of Jesus leaving earth and one day returning to heaven or leaving earth and returning to heaven, but before Jesus leaves to come back, before that, he gives us a job to do. But Jesus hasn't left us empty-handed. He has delivered his goods, if you will, to us. That is, Jesus has given us the resources to do the job that he's called us to do. And of course, with those goods that he's delivered to each of us comes a responsibility to invest those goods for his kingdom, and for his kingdom purposes. Now, here's a question to think about too. What kind of goods has God delivered to us? Well, we know the goods in this parable are talents. We see that in the story because each of these three servants were given talents to invest on behalf of their master. Verse 15 tells us, And to one he gave five talents, to another two and to another one, and to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Now, again, you have to go back in context. In the first century, a talent, all it did, it simply referred to a very, very large amount of money. I won't go into all the details of exactly how much, but understand, it was a large amount of money. But in application, we can also apply this to all the resources that God has delivered to you and I, if you will, such as our natural abilities, our spiritual gifts, our material things, opportunities that we've been given, all those things applicationally can fall under the goods, if you will, the talent that we have begotten from God himself. Now, from this, we learn a very crucial truth as well. All that we have, though, Belongs to who? God. In a literal sense, we own nothing. Not a thing. All the things we think 
are ours are really God's. He made them. He gave them to us. And one day He will take them from us again. Even your life is a gift from God. And one day you will have to answer. I will have to answer what we did with the life that God gave to us. Now, here's another observation. Did you notice that each servant is given a different amount of talents? Rather interesting. The master didn't take all his talents and divide by three and then parcel it out. Why? Well, because the talents were distributed to each servant according to what? According to his own ability, Jesus says. Now, who made that determination? Well, the master did. Why did he do it that way? Because he's the master and that's what he wanted to do. And no other reason is needed to be given. This may seem unfair on the surface. This may seem unfair even in our hearts until you begin to realize that as the owner of the goods, the master has every right to determine who gets how many talents according to the master's own judgment and according to our own abilities that even God has given to us as well. Now, this brings us to another crucial truth. One that we don't really want to hear and don't like, and yet we need to understand, and that is God is not obligated to treat you like he treats anyone else. Let me say that again because I don't like it. But it's so true. God is not obligated to treat you like he treats anyone else. Listen, he can give you more or less than someone else. And he does, by the way. Some of you have more than some and less than others. Now, this reality leaves us basically with two choices. We can either gripe about it, start complaining about it, get mad at God about it, and make all kinds of excuses about it, why we can't do anything for the Lord with the resources we've been given, because it's not fair. He's got more. Or, the second choice is, we can accept it as a gift from God. And we can begin to focus on our responsibility to simply use what we've been given by God for His kingdom and His purposes. True, we are not all equal in terms of talents, gifts, and opportunities. But let me say this, we all have, listen to me, the same chance to do something with what we've been given. Now understand, when it comes to our responsibility, you got the goods and you got the ability. Don't miss that. He delivered his goods to each servant according to their what? Ability. The implication is they all three had ability. To invest those goods and do something with them. And it is true for you and I. Everyone here. You got the goods from the Father. And you also have the ability to do something with it. You see, the question is not, how much do you have? The question is, what you going to do with what you got? It's not what you have. It's what you do with what you have that makes all the difference in the world. Because the second lesson that comes screaming out to us from this story is... God expects a return on what he has given us. Do you realize that? God delivered the goods to you according to your ability, and now he expects you to give back something. He expects a return. These servants, all three of them, they clearly understood they were expected to make a profit on the master's goods. That was the whole reason why the master entrusted his servants with the talents to begin with. Notice what the first two servants immediately do with their talents. Look at it in verse 16 and 17. It says, then he who had received the five talents, what did he do? Oh, he went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But notice what the third servant did with his talent in verse 18. It says, but he who had received one talent went and, oh, the poor guy, he dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now, let's take a moment and focus on the two servants who actually made a profit on their talents. One man started with five talents and ended with how many? 
Ten. Another man started with two talents and ended with how many? Four. Not bad, right? How many would take that on their retirement accounts? Right? Sure, we all would. I mean, both men gained 100% increase on what they had been given from their master. And even though they started with different amounts, get this, they both doubled what their master had given them. But what about this third guy? How'd he do? Well, he didn't do so well, did he? He started with one talent and he ended with how many? One. Why? Because he did absolutely nothing with his talent. Nothing. He didn't do anything with it unless you count digging a hole in the ground and burying it something. And the only reason he did that is because he was so afraid of the master. He was afraid of losing this one talent that that's all that he could be motivated to do. These guys did well. The other one did nothing. And from this example of the three servants, it's easy to see that even in our day and age, even now, some people do well with their God-given resources, while other people do nothing with their God-given resources. You see, in a real way, this story, it forces us to come to grips with the question, what you going to do with what you got? And whether you realize it or not, listen, every day you are answering that question by how you live your life. But this story also raises a second question. The first question is, what are you going to do till Jesus comes? But the second question that it raises that I want us to contemplate is, what are you going to say when Jesus comes? You see, right now, Jesus is away in heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father. But folks, listen, one day he is going to return. And the question is, what are you going to say to him when he comes? Now, why is that question so important for us to struggle with, wrestle with, if you will? Why is that such an important question? Because if you notice in your notes there, God will hold us accountable for what we have done or not done with the resources he has given us. How many want to be audited by the IRS? Raise your hand. Anybody here? Any takers? Yeah, none of us do. I, I don't know anybody that wants to be audited by the IRS. But folks, do you realize a day is coming when we are going to be audited by the Almighty? One day Jesus will return and we will have to give an account for how we have used what we've been given. Look what Jesus says now in verse 19 in the story. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came, and what did he do? Settled accounts with them. Jesus is coming again. That's the implication here. And there is going to be a day of reckoning. Now, while most of us, I, I really do believe, we believe this in our heads. We know this truth in our heads. Jesus is coming, and there's going to be a day of reckoning. The problem is, we don't always live with eternity in our hearts. Otherwise, we would be much more focused and passionate and more motivated to make an eternal return on the things that God has given to us in this life. The Bible reminds us of this truth in Romans 14, 12, when he says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, just for a moment, imagine the scene with me. Picture this in your mind, these three servants going before their master on their day of reckoning. As the servants, they stand before their master, they give their account of their work. And the first servant enters the master's office and he says, according to verse 20, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. And look, I have gained five more talents besides them. The second servant enters the master's office, and he says, according to verse 22, Lord, you delivered to me two talents, and look, I have gained two more talents besides them. Now understand, these servants weren't bragging. They weren't arrogant. They weren't boastful here. They were simply making a good showing of their stewardship. And as they did, you can imagine the delight in their master's eyes as the talents are now stacked neatly on his desk. 
Finally, though, the third servant's called into the office. He enters in the master's office, and he, you could tell by the look on his face, he's, a little, he's caught off guard by this. It's like he forgot that this was happening or going to happen. And I can just picture him frantically before all this, digging up his talent out of the ground, almost forgetful of where he buried it. So there's several holes nearby. And with dirt still under his fingernails, he rolls the solitary coin across the desk and quickly comes up with an excuse. He says in verses 24 and 25, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Now, it's interesting that he returned the entire amount back to his master. Did he not? He didn't steal the talent. He didn't lose the talent. He didn't even spend the talent. Instead, he just did nothing with it. And so he offered up an excuse to his master for why he did nothing. I mean, I can't help but think this brings us to a a very pointed question. When you stand before God at the judgment seat, When I stand before God, what are we going to offer Him? Are we going to offer Him a return? Or are we going to offer up an excuse? Folks, realize one day you will stand before God. And He's going to ask, all right, show me, tell me, how'd you do with what I gave you? And we're going to begin to blurt out something. What are you going to blurt out? What are you going to offer? Are you going to offer the Lord a return on the resources He has given to you to use for His kingdom? Or are you going to just fidget around with hands in your pockets or twiddle your thumbs thinking up an excuse for why you did nothing with His resources for His kingdom while you were living in this life? Listen, and here's another thing. Do you think the excuse that third servant offered to his master did any good? Do you think it was acceptable? Do you think the master accepted that? Let me tell you, when we stand before the Lord one day, all excuses will fail. They will fall to the wayside. What are you going to do now with what you got? And what are you going to say when he comes again and holds us accountable? Now, this leads into another principle, another lesson for us. Notice it there in your notes. What we do or don't do with what we have reveals our view of God. You see, all three servants knew the master would return. They not only knew the master would return one day. Let me tell you, they all knew he was going to demand an accounting. But the first two servants focused on the fact that their master, besides being a fair man, could also be very, very generous. They knew if they did a good job, they were going to have a great reward at the end. But what about this third guy? How did he view his master? Well, notice what he says. In verse 24, the very first words out of his mouth are, Lord, I knew you to be what? A hard man. A hard man. Man, I would say this master proved to be the most generous, most gracious, and most just man. So what was this guy's problem? Why didn't he do anything? Why did he offer an excuse? Why did he think that? Listen, the problem this servant had is he thought. He thought he knew his master. When in reality, he didn't have a clue who his master was. And because he didn't know him, he didn't trust him. And because he didn't trust him, he did absolutely nothing with what he was given. This man goes on to say in verse 24, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And I was afraid. In other words, he is saying, I didn't trust you completely. 
Now, perhaps that's your problem here this morning. That might be some of our problem here as we evaluate our own lives. You see, if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know what kind of master that He is, listen, you will never trust Him. And if you don't trust the Lord, it's a simple fact that you will never invest the resources that He has given you for His kingdom. It's it's what A.W. Tozer once said. And he was right on when he said this. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. This man failed. And he failed miserably because he didn't know his master. And therefore, he didn't trust his master. Therefore, he did nothing with his resources. Now, this leads us to another crucial truth that we need to grapple with. And that is, oh, how easy. Oh, how easy it is to deceive ourselves thinking, I know the Master. When in reality, we don't really know Him at all. And the proof is what we're doing with what we got. See, you can say anything you want. And many people do. You can talk it. You can converse with it. You can say anything you like. But what you do with what you got tells the real story. This third man thought. Think about that. He thought he knew his master, but he didn't. And that's why he did nothing. When we truly know the Lord, when we know the master and have a relationship with him, listen, we will trust him. And when we trust the Lord, we will work for Him. We will be motivated to take what we've been given and invest it on His behalf for His kingdom. Now this story, the end of the story, as we come to it, it raises another question for us. The first question we ask is, what are we going to do? What are you going to do till Jesus comes? The second question is, what are you going to say once Jesus comes? But now we find a third question that is equally important. That question is, what are you going to hear when Jesus comes? I like the personal mission statement of author and speaker Steve Farrar. He's written several books, and in one of his books, and even in a conference, he has shared this numerous times. And I just love his personal mission statement. Are you ready for it? Let me tell you, it is, I mean, it is so complex Don't screw up. That's his mission statement. Don't screw up. Well, we could say this third servant, he screwed up when he did nothing with his talent. Whereas the first two servants, they did well when they invested their talents and brought a return to their master. Now, what did these servants hear when they stood before their master? What did they hear? from their master after they told him what they had did for them, him with his money. Well, notice the first two servants heard praise. They heard affirmation. The master tells them, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the third servant, man, let me tell you, he heard rebuke. The master tells him, you wicked and lazy servant. And then the master proceeds to tell him something else. In verses 26 and 28, look at it with me. He says, You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I have not scattered seed. Therefore, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. You know what the master's telling this guy? He's basically saying... Listen to me, man, you are, you're lying. In your heart, you are selfish and you are lazy. Because if you really wanted to do something, you would have at least put my money in the bank to earn interest. Now, the end of the story raises two practical lessons for you and I this morning. Notice the first one. What you do now determines what you will hear from the Lord. 
What we do now in this life determines what we will hear from the Lord in the next life. So let me ask us a question. This is a, a we, we ought to stop right here and think about this. Let's pretend Jesus comes now today. And we are lined up for the day of reckoning. And we're standing before the Lord. And based upon your life up to today, looking back, everything up to today, what do you think you're going to hear from the Lord? What are you going to hear? Well, from the story, we get an inside look into what we might hear from the Lord. The story reveals to us that if we are unfaithful in using our resources for God's kingdom and, and His purposes, if we do nothing, if we just squander it away, then we are going to hear you wicked and lazy servant. But this story also reveals to us that if we are faithful in using our resources for God's kingdom, then you are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, that's a glorious thing. God's going to say, great job. Man, you didn't just live for yourself. You used the resources that I parceled out to you to accomplish my purposes for my kingdom in that life that you just got through living. Great job. Man, we all want to hear that. That's one of the things I have learned as a parent over and over and over again. My two boys want to hear the affirmation of their dad. And some of us are more prone to that than others. Every child longs to hear affirmation from their dad. Listen, God the Father, we, are, we want to hear Him say that if we're truly His children. That ought to be a great motivation for us. But the conclusion of the story also contains a second lesson. The first is what we do now determines what we're going to hear from the Lord. But what you do now also determines how, listen to me, how you are going to spend eternity. You see, this story teaches that God, what does He do when it comes to faithful stewardship? He rewards it. But He also punishes lazy stewardship. Now, let me just say it up front. In all honesty, man, I wish, oh, how I wish, there was some way to, quote, sugarcoat what Jesus says in verse 30 about this third dude. Because it's not a pretty picture, folks. Look what he says about him in verse 30. Look at it. Jesus says, and cast the unprofitable. That word unprofitable can also be translated as worthless, servant into the outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth now this is one of the hardest biblical truths to come to grips with because of the severity of jesus punishment here and yet god says listen to me get this that a lazy steward is a worthless steward and therefore he is in essence faithless who will be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a description of hell all over the Gospels. You know, as I sat in my office studying this, I thought to myself, boy, how we sometimes radically underestimate, myself included, the importance of our responsibility with the talents and the goods we've been given. God says a lazy servant is worthless because he has wasted the talents he was given. He didn't use his talents, in other words, to profit the kingdom of God. And God says this lazy servant was faithless because he didn't trust his master or his master's provisions. Folks, do you realize that without faith, Hebrews tells us it is what? Impossible to please God. You know what else is impossible to do without faith? Receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and enter into the kingdom of God. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? 
You must be what? Born again to see the kingdom of God. And how are we born again? By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. This third servant proved in the end that he was not a believer. He was faithless. He was worthless to the kingdom. The point here, listen to me, the point as we come down to this is not that this servant did something grossly morally. Not that he did something that was so outrageously unethical or immoral. Listen, the point is that this guy didn't do anything. Therefore, he lost everything and he suffered in agony. This man represents those people who, quote, call themselves Christians. They call themselves believers. They may even attend church Christmas, Easter, maybe even every Sunday. But yet, in reality, they never give their hearts to the Lord. They never put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And therefore, they never serve the Lord ultimately with their gifts. Instead, what do they do? They take what they've been given. They take their goods from the master and they invest it for themselves because they're still living for the world that we see with our eyes. Understand, those who don't know the Lord personally won't serve Him with their talents. But those of us who do, when we know the Lord personally, listen, we will use our talents to serve Him. And when we do, oh man, let me tell you, we can rejoice over those rewards. And those rewards are awesome. They are spectacular. I mean, you think you like your little reward that you got from your manager, a little plaque that stands there that you hang on your wall. Listen, that's nothing to compare to what we're going to get. My son Tyler and Jack play baseball, and they have all these little trophies that collect dust, get broken. Rewards. Listen, faithful servants will receive the reward, get this, of being promoted to greater service in God's kingdom. The master tells these two faithful servants in verse 21 and 23, you were faithful over a few things, over two talents, five talents. Listen, I'm now going to make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You want to get ahead in life? You want to get ahead in life? I'm not talking about this life. Not the life we feel and touch with our eyes. I'm talking about, do you want to get ahead in life, in the the eternal life? Then use your resources in this life for God's kingdom. And let me tell you, He will make you ruler over many things in the next life. So what did Jesus mean by that? He promises these guys that he would make them rule over many things. What is he talking about? Well, in a very similar story, but yet not identical, over in Luke chapter 19, Jesus promises to give his faithful followers, his loyal followers, his true believers, the, the, the chance to rule over cities of the earth during the millennial kingdom. In fact, to one, he promised, get this, ten cities that he could rule over. And to another, he promised five cities. Now, I'm just blown away by that. I mean, think about this. One day, this means we will get to share in Christ's triumph. And we will rule with him in the millennial kingdom. In other words, if we have been faithful with our God-given resources in this life today, listen, then Jesus will give us cities to rule in the next life. So let me ask you, what city do you want? How many want Kansas City? How many want New York? Maybe you just want Kearney. Kearney's a growing city. It's a nice place to live. Listen, if you're faithful now, who knows? God just might give you that city to rule with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's an awesome thought. Folks, listen to me. Mark it down. Mark it down in your head. Mark it down in your heart. Jesus is coming. He is coming. And this parable, let me tell you, it forces us to come to grips with three questions. What are you going to do till Jesus comes? What are you going to say when Jesus comes? And what are you going to hear 
when Jesus comes. But please know. Oh, please know. Your opportunity to answer these questions is slipping away with each passing day. That's why the opportunity is now. It is now the opportunity is to work for the Lord. Now is the time to make the most with what you've been given before it's too late. Folks, do you realize that the good news is here, right here? The good news is this. We still have a chance to answer these three questions. It's not too late. Do you realize that? We still have a chance to work for the Lord. Do you realize, if, if you're honest in answering this question, you're like, man, I don't like the answer I'm given. I don't like the answer, if I'm really honest, that I would have to put out after those questions. You have an opportunity to change that answer. We have an opportunity now to make the most with what we've been given. But let me tell you, that opportunity is slipping away each passing day. Listen, Jesus could come today. Do you realize that? Well, let me offer to you another reality. You could die tonight. And the opportunity to make the most with what you've been given will be over like that. I want to end our service with a video. It's called The Story of Zach Smith. Some of you are familiar with Zach Smith. He is the son of former missionaries, Jim and Sharon Smith, who were missionaries to Ecuador. Some of you may remember they were with us, Jim, Sharon, and their daughter Stacy, at our last World Outreach celebration. This last Sunday, Zach died from his battle with cancer. And he is now standing in glory with the Lord. He is in the presence of God Almighty. And the reason I want to show you this video is because his life is an example of what it means to make the most with what you've been given for God's kingdom before it's too late. Take a look. Hi, my name is Zach Smith, and I am 33 years old. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Mandy, for 11 years. We have three children, Lizzie, Jake, and Luke. And this is my story. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I grew up as a son of missionary parents in Ecuador, where I lived for 15 years. I went to college in Arizona, where I met my wife. For the next 10 years, we traveled around while I worked in the information technology field. We served in our local church, and I attended seminary. I often thought about working in full-time ministry, but no opportunities seemed right. I was told about a job here at New Spring Church helping with information technology. It was perfect, an IT job at an amazing church. I took the job and started working in October of 2008. For several months, life was very good and we were very happy. In May of 2009, at age 32, I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Immediately, I had surgery to remove a foot and a half of my large intestine and a lemon-sized tumor. I was told that cancer had spread to my spleen and to my liver. Chemotherapy was on the horizon. This was all a very sudden shock to me. I had always been very healthy. And I found myself very confused. Why did I have cancer? Had I done something wrong to cause it? Was this a result of many years of sinful living in my past? I was working at a church and serving God. Where did I go wrong? But thankfully the confusion quickly turned to hope. I knew that God had a plan for my life. I did not understand why I had cancer, but I knew that God was in charge. For three months, I underwent a horrible chemo regimen. Afterwards, I had a scan done, and the results were great. There was no cancer found in my body. We celebrated God's healing and God's faithfulness. And the next few weeks of my life were some of the best, as I celebrated being cancer-free. But another scan one month later showed that the cancer had reappeared this time in my abdominal cavity. I was devastated. Why was it back? Everything was just starting to make sense, but the reoccurrence of cancer caused even greater confusion. I resumed chemotherapy and did more tests. The cancer is now growing and getting worse. Unfortunately, the chemo drugs are no longer effective in my abdomen. 
and surgery is not an option due to the degraded state of my liver. Medically speaking, there is nothing more for me. And medically speaking, I probably will not live to 2011. The Bible says in Matthew 7:11 that God gives good things to those who ask. God cannot give me a bad gift. And it is through that lens that I can say that cancer is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I am a better husband and a better dad, a better boss and a better employee, a better friend and a better follower of Jesus. And through cancer, God has shown me some amazing things about himself. Those are indeed great gifts. I still have questions about cancer, why it went away and why it came back. I do not understand, but I know that God is in charge. I am praying for God to heal me. That is my desire. I want to walk my daughter Lizzie down the aisle. I want to watch my sons, Jake and Luke, become men. I want to grow old with Mandy. And I want to live my life with my friends here at work. But I may not be able to work for very much longer. And I may have just celebrated my last Christmas with my family. I do know. If God chooses to heal me, then God is God and God is good. If God chooses not to heal me and allows me to die, God is still God and God is still good. To God be the glory. Did you guys catch how he viewed his cancer? He viewed it as a gift from God. That's what God had given to him. That was the goods that God delivered to Zach Smith. Let me tell you, he used them for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. He made the most out of it during his time on this earth. The question for us, what are we going to do with what we got? With your heads bowed. And as we prepare for our response time, you know, traditionally here at our church, we don't have a lot of altar calls. But this morning, I, I feel just led to, to, for us to have one, for us to get, have the opportunity to stand and, and come to this altar and to beg God to give us the grace and the strength to work for Him and to be diligent while we still have time on this earth. There is a job to do. There's a job of, of giving and sharing the hope of Jesus Christ to this community and beyond and across the world. What are we going to do with what we've got? Bill and the praise team are going to sing. And as they do, I'm asking you to join me here at this altar. Do business with God as you feel led. And so will you stand? Lord, we come to you and... And as we're standing as a congregation of you now, I ask that your spirit would work mightily in this congregation and that we would respond to your word and your spirit and your prompting. We would examine our hearts, our lives, in relation to these three questions, Lord. Work, and may your will be done. We ask these things in your name. Amen. As Bill sings, will you respond? Sovereign God, O matchless King, the saints adore, the angels sing, and fall before the throne of grace. To you belongs the highest praise. We suffer. Passing time under your wings, I will abide, and every enemy shall flee. 
Praise the Son, praise the Spirit. 